You found the world's most dangerous podcast, where an MMA heavyweight world champion fighter mixes things up with a hot shot entrepreneur, the only successful substitute for brains, ankle locks. Meet your co-hosts, serial entrepreneur, Dez W. Woodruff, and UFC Hall of Famer and the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Hey, hey, freak dogs. Welcome to the world's most dangerous podcast. My name is Dez W. Woodruff, and I'm here with my co-host, the UFC Hall of Famer, four-time heavyweight world champion and the W. WF legend and also known as the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Hey, hey, what's going on, man? Looking forward to our show today, man. We're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff. So, hey, stay tuned. Let's have some fun. Let's have some fun. Today's broadcast, today's podcast is we're going we're gonna to mix it up. We're going to talk about some old school stuff and we're going to talk about business and success and how we can get to the next level. Let's get started. And then we're going to talk about having fun when you're fighting. <laughs> Story time with Genji and Rock. Yeah, last year we were in Chicago at the penthouse um, guys were we had a great get together with the lion's den and frank was there with guy you and guy and, and frank and it was cool just hanging out with the old lion's den guys and hearing your stories and and just seeing you and frank interacting after so many years yeah it was fun i had a really great time you know i'm a little bit disappointed in um the actual penthouse themselves. I mean, like uh, I was supposed to get a blouse. I was supposed to get a belt and the <laughs> shoes. And they kept telling me that they were coming and they kept telling me they were coming. And then finally I just lost contact with them and I still don't have my shoes, belts and blouse. <laughs> a blouse. Women wear blouses, Ken. Exactly. That's what they called it. So you tell me, <laughs> you tell me what, what I'm supposed to call it. <laughs> That's what they called it, so that's what I'm calling it. So they, we have, a, we have a, a clear communication between each other. All right. Okay, now, penthouse guys, you're watching this and listening at this moment. We've got to make good on that. Right. <laughs> hey, how is that suit doing for you? Oh, man, these guys are great, man. You know, of course, you know, things like that happen. And I, like I said, I don't hold it against them. But if I don't tell them, they won't know. We had a great time, and the suits are awesome. And I, I know they've got another one coming up, and I just got contacted uh, by another fighter who was asking, you know, how things were and this and that. And I told him, hey, man, this is one of those times where you just sit around the coffee table and just talk to people. It's that comfortable. It's that, in, it's that engaging. It's just a really great place to be. It's a good event, and anybody that hasn't been to one need to go try it. It's the penthouse panel where you get a bunch of guys together and talk about fighting. And it's a small group of people that get to intermingle with them after they're done talking. So it's a great event. If you haven't been to one, go to one. Yeah, I would agree with that. The guy that made the suit for you, I believe was Chris Maltzberger. I believe right. that. Or he's the one that headed it up, if I remember right. Anyway, there's a number of them. And yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's funny, man. They get some big name fighters coming into their group. And yeah, what a neat thing. And I'm only a hop, skip, and a jump from Chicago. I should buzz up there each time that they do one. Well, yeah, it's good, too. You know, there's, I know that Mark Coleman's going to this thing, and there's a few other big names that are going. So 
really great time to get to hear their stories and some of the struggles that they had to go through early on. And even during the time that they were um, sitting on the, on the title, you know, just to get to hear their stories and because everybody has a story and it's really interesting to hear the ones that you see when you watch them on TV and you see all the glory and all the stuff they're going through. But then you get to look behind the curtain when they're sitting there in front of you and you get to talk to them and ask them questions about different situations and find out the real story right from their mouth. Mm, that is good. And I stand corrected. It's Mike Bernstein um, who did the the suits for you and all. So yeah, looking at, I, I pulled up some information here, but the penthouse panel, 111. That was the last time I saw you and Frank together. And Frank, holy smokes, kid. I mean, you, when you started wrapping up your days and fighting, and he started hitting his stride. Well, no, actually, uh, me and Frank fought, he, and he was actually in his prime. I was still fighting, but he was really starting to hit in his prime, catching the championship belts. After I came back from pro wrestling, he was just, he was on fire. I mean, he was winning everything. And it was unfortunate. It really was unfortunate to see guys like Frank and Pat Militech. And, you know, I can go on and name a few others that I never really got um, the credibility. Um, Mikey Burnett being another one and mm. Jerry Boland being another one. They never really got the credit that they deserved for the for, for being able to open these weight classes up and being able to be the first ones to actually wear a belt in these weight classes. And they're never mentioned. And yet that's the history. That's the beginning of, of uh, the, the middleweight and the lightweight classes was, you know, Jerry Boland or Guy Mesger, uh, Pete, Pete Williams, uh, Frank Shamrock, and then Tito. Those, that was the succession right there. And so it never gets mentioned. And it's a shame because when you talk about history and these different Hall of Fame things that open up, it seems like they only, they only recognize what they remember. They only recognize what the Americans are doing. But they don't understand that MMA, mixed martial arts, and no holds barred has been around for quite some time. And there's more history there. You know, you look at Muhammad Ali and Anoki. Or not Anoki. Was it Anoki? Yeah, it was Anoki. Muhammad Ali and Anoki in the first mixed martial arts. It wasn't a very good fight, obviously, because one stayed on the ground, the other one stayed standing. But it was a match. It was one put on. And it was mixed martial arts. And so much is just unheard of because people don't want to really dig down deep to find out what the true lineage is of MMA and no holes barred. When you look at these uh, different leagues or these different uh, events or, or organizations that host uh, these Hall of Fames, they've got guys up there like myself and Hoist Gracie as, as like the first. And that's just not true. When I was over in Japan, when I was first starting over in Japan, there was guys over there like Eric Paulson, who was also an American. It was a, he was doing Shuto, I believe it was, but it was still mixed martial arts, uh, who had won a belt. And same, it was the same time I was there, I believe. And then, and then you got guys like Fanaki and Suzuki and, and Fujiwara Gumi. And then you had Anoki, uh, not Anoki, yeah, Anoki, who was a pro wrestler, but also did Brazilian jiu-jitsu early on. That's when he went in with to fight uh, Ali in the mixed martial arts match. You got Maeda, who actually started the first shoot group over there in Japan, which is the one I was a part of in the very beginning. And then, you know, you got so many different people from Russia and Germany in judo competitions that had did mixed martial arts. So the thing is, is it's like this. If you're going to do a Hall of Fame and you're going to recognize people and you want it to be a recognizable organization, then you need to have people that are going to look 
into the future and get it right. Me and Hoist Gracie were not the first. Well, it's interesting to me is seeing some of the Lions Den guys who did win world championships on seeing how they are also in the business world today and multiple businesses at that, including yourself. You know, it's interesting to see that people who perform at a very high level in sports, sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes can bridge over and become just as active and successful in the business world too. Well, you look at Jerry Bolander, he became a sheriff. And he retired as a sheriff, had a great career there. And, uh, you know, you look at Vernon White, who uh, was a prison guard and now is also an instructor in in the gym. But he also had taught some of their self-defense classes. And, you know, you look at Guy Mesger, who's been a gym owner forever and is in multiple different types of businesses. And like you said, an entrepreneur, definitely got fingers in a lot of different things in Texas. So he's really done really well for himself. You got Pete Williams who was a chef and he used to cook for some of these reality shows and different things on TV. He used to be the chef for him and he's made a great living for himself. And I could go on and on about different guys who have reached and done very well after fighting. And you know what? It all comes down to the training. I believe anybody that puts himself through that type of training to be successful at something, once they've done that, did you know mentally they already have that thing in them that won't let them fail? They will be successful no matter what because they because of that determination that that I've seen through these tryouts won't let them be a failure. That's a mouthful right there. It's about that determination, right? About that push ahead, making it happen at all costs. What's interesting is you just said something about training and you can't be a world champion fighter without the the proper training the guided training along with the tenacity the never quit so you put those two things together you got a pretty good combination to do some amazing things skill sets can be learned but in business i would say it's the same thing just because you're a high profile high producing professional athlete that that does really well doesn't mean that you're just automatically going to be successful in business. You have to go through the same training and learning the same skill sets. But with the tenacity of the never quit attitude, you put that with the right information, the right data, the right systems in place, and knowing how to do that really makes a person unstoppable. Well, and I, and that's what I'm trying to say is that, you know, look at a guy like me, right? I mean, you look at me, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to be successful and that I've already shown that through the world of MMA where there was nobody to train me. I did it all. I built it all on my own. There was no, there was no map for me. I just looked at it, said that's, I liked it. And then I started developing things around me to help me be successful. And so I, that was a determination that I had. Well, now all of a sudden here I am at the end of my road and, and my skill sets, I can't keep going back to the same well again because I don't have the same skill set. So I needed to change, and I needed to, I needed to be able to understand that, okay, I have the determination, I have the willpower, I have the desire, nothing's going to make me fail. I won't let it happen. And the only reason why I won't let it happen is because I've been there. I don't want to go back. And the only way I can stop that from happening is what? Get educated because I can't do it on my own. I couldn't do what I did before where I saw what I wanted. I built the pieces around me and I went and got it. Well, the same thing I'm sitting there now is like, yeah, it's the same thing, man. I can't do it on my own. I've got to go out, find the pieces that I need to build around me so that I can be successful. And the thing now is, is I got to have somebody that understands business. 
I got to have somebody that understands how to build it. And I have to have somebody teach me that. And so therefore, what do I do? I find somebody like Des Woodruff, somebody that I put right beside me and say, man, let's walk this journey together. Show me what I'm doing. Help me understand what it is to take what I have already built and turn it into a business success. And that's part of that mentality of the desire of being successful is not being afraid to give things up, not being afraid to, to say, I don't know, or that to help me, Hey, I need help. And that's the difference between somebody who wants to be successful and will do anything to be successful as opposed to somebody that wants to be successful, but they don't want anybody to know they can't do it on their own. If that's the case, you will fail because you can't do it on your own. You have to have people around you to help you make good decisions, to go in the right direction, and to help you understand certain situations. Man, that is awesome word right there. It's all about putting yourself in the right position, having the mindset to move forward and to do it, to make it happen and be wise enough and have and put ego aside to know where your strengths are and more importantly, to know where the weaknesses are and to strengthen those weaknesses by teaming up with the right people. That's the name of the game. And it's, it's, it's no different, dude, when you want to be successful at something. I've said this many times about how the, the ego and the desire of being successful kept me warm at night. But there's also a point in time where that ego and that desire of being successful, if you ain't smart, and if you're not thinking about the right decisions and the right moves, that will cause you to fail too, because then you don't let things go. You don't let things out. You don't say, Hey, I need help. Or, Hey, I don't understand this because that ego of yours won't let you let people know, Hey, you have a weakness. So it's about the strategic thought of being strong, right? If you don't know something and you don't understand it, if you try to cover that up strategically, that's bad because now you're only going to get weaker and weaker because you're never going to learn it because you didn't ask. So don't be afraid to go, Hey, okay, here's something I don't understand. Explain it to me. Now you don't got to tell the whole world, Hey, I don't understand that, but there's certain people that you got to have around you that you know, you can go to and go, listen, explain this to me or, or tell, am I doing this right? Because if you don't have those, those pieces around you and the, those things that you can go to and go, Hey, you know, I'm uneducated here. Show me this. Then you're never going to learn the right way to do things. And sooner or later, it will bite you in the butt. You need to keep learning and you need to keep asking questions to keep learning. What you just said there was key. You have to always be learning and you have to be connected with the right people to learn the right things. And that's easily done if you throw yourself into something that you're naturally interested in. If it's something that you have a passion for, or you're just intrigued by a certain business model, a certain type of service or product or an activity that you're associated with, a church or a, a nonprofit of some sort, or wherever that passion lies, I think it comes natural for us to want to learn about it. But what's interesting is I think a lot of people don't take the requisite steps or don't they do not go deep enough into their learning and understanding that's required for success and what i mean by that is there's different levels of learning and if a person only learns let me give you an example if a person only learns about a specific item and 
they do not learn about the different levels of just business by itself. So for example, let's say somebody was going to oh, run a restaurant and they're going to be, it's going to be Frank's hot dogs. <laughs> okay. So Frank's hot dogs and that they threw their time and all their energy in learning into what makes the best hot dog, you know, the best flavored hot dog, the healthiest hot dog, yada, yada, yada the chances of success for that business to materialize into anything worthwhile is very, very little. The, what they have to do on their, their research and, and their learning is to expand that from the thing that they're specifically interested in into how, what systems, what methods they need to do to reach the masses so the masses can consume that pun intended <laughs> that product that you're making right. in this in this called Frank's hot dog. So my point my whole big point there is there's a couple barriers of entry for a person to do anything in the business world and make it. And one is one having a legitimate interest in what it is that you're doing. And knowing that whatever it is that you're doing or want to do, that service that you want to provide or the product you want to deliver, that needs to be a service or a product that helps the masses. And not only does it need to help the masses, but your learning needs to go beyond just the product or the service itself. It has to be more well-rounded. You don't have to be a master of everything. And that's where you partner up with the right people, again, who can bring strength to your weaknesses. Yeah, and I and I agree with that too. And it's something, and I know there's people out there right now have gone through some struggles because me and as we know this, right? When we've been through some some sure things that <laughs> just fell out, the bottom just fell out, right? Yep, and no yep. no fault of ours. It's just because of some of the information that was being fed to us, and it, everything looked good on the surface. And so we went ahead and went forward with it. And once we started digging a little bit deeper and deeper, all of a sudden the whole bottom falls out of it. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is what you guys told us. So I understand a lot of these things that we're talking about also depends upon the amount of information you have, the amount of knowledge that you're getting from the people that you're getting, that you're trusting. And so don't think for a minute that, you know, all these things are going to work out the way we're saying they're going to. Like, well, if you put the work into it, if you do all these things, man, you're going to be successful because that ain't how it works. And there's things that look like are just perfect for you that are just sitting there ripe as all get out. And all of a sudden you find out the inside's rotten. Those are things you cannot really see. And it's not your fault, right? What is your fault is that when you do find out that something's wrong with it, and you spend too much time trying to fix it, trying to make it come back. Because you look at the profit, you look at the size of the amount of money that you possibly could make. But if you're not, if you're really looking at it from you know 30,000 feet up, you realize there's nowhere else to go. So don't try to salvage something that you realize is dead or that might have you know two heartbeats left and you want to revive it. Because more than likely you're gonna spend a lot of time on something especially after the person's already been feeding you false information. It's already uh, you're on the wrong foot anyways. Do not spend time on that stuff. Cut bait and go. Look for another fishing hole because the problem with it is, is you spend too much time, you lose money. So that's one thing I learned a lot I mean, the ventures that we've had. The idea is like you can't, you can't start thinking about what you did wrong or how you got caught up into this because it's, when you're getting fed stuff and information that are being sent to you and you've done your digging, you've done your due diligence and you've only gotten to a certain point, everything looks good. 
But then when you finally get past that front gate and you get to walk into the house and you find out, wow, it's not what they said. Cut bait. It is time to go. Spend no more time on it and move into another direction. The only way to do that, that is to have a game plan beforehand. Because what happens is we'll get into a business, we'll get into an idea, we'll get into a new job, we'll get into whatever it is we're into. And we become emotionally, mentally vested in that. And as a winner, we want to make everything work. There's a lot of things in life that you have to make sure that you're not emotionally and mentally attached to. And one of those is business opportunities, job opportunities, girlfriend, boyfriend opportunities, uh, any sort of opportunity that you have until you make a, a decisive commitment. So like, for example, you got a girlfriend and you make a decisive commitment to marry that person. That's for life. Marry that person and be committed to that person for life. In business, one thing that is so important, if you're trying, because we have a lot of people, Ken, that will come to us with our lion's cage and they'll present something to us, but they're not ready yet. Or we found out the market isn't ready yet for their product or the market may never be ready for their product. And that's a problem for us because we don't want to tie up our time and energies in a business and a product that doesn't have market interest, meaning that the market is not willing to buy and consume. If they're not willing to do that, then it doesn't make sense for us to take our time and invest it into that product because time is a commodity. We all have 24 hours from this point until tomorrow at this exact time. We have the 24 hours. You have it, Ken. I have it. Every person around us has it. The question is, what are we doing in those 24 hours to push towards a better tomorrow. If we get sucked into a business that does not have the ability to make us a better tomorrow, we have to be in a position, have a, a, some sort of plan in place to get out of it quickly. There's a book called Fail, Fail Fast or Failing Fast or Fail Fast or something like that. The concept of the book is simply this. If you get into something Give it your best shot early, measure those results, and find out if it's going to work out. There's a great example of this. Have you ever watched that show, um, It's a Hit, Gold Rush? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that show, they do something really interesting, and, and I think it's genius, and not everybody does this, and it's all about numbers, right? Well, what they'll do is they'll punch a hole in the ground and every 10 feet or so, they'll punch another hole in the ground. They'll make this huge grid of holes and they'll test just those samplings of those big holes that they pull out. And what they'll do is they'll look for a vein of, of gold. So they'll look for those holes that they punched and that they tested that has the most gold in them. And that tells them where they should start doing their digging. That makes all the sense in the world. A lot of people just buy a plot of ground, start digging and hoping there's gold there. What makes more sense is digging a couple pilot holes to find out for sure, let the testing tell you if there's gold or not before you start investing time, energy, money into that endeavor. Same thing in business world. Same thing. The same concept is dig your pilot holes. Find out if there's a market for your product. Put it out for sale on a, a limited thing. I'll tell you one of the most genius things a person can do is put it on a Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Actually put it out there for the market to say, 
invest in my widget. In your investment, you'll buy the widget and then you'll get it at a later date after it's fabricated because we're going to need your money to fabricate this widget. Well, the genius behind that is it, it builds social proof. If you have a successful Kickstarter or Indiegogo, which for the people that don't know what these are, these are social funding sites. So you can have an idea. You could say, hey, man, I've, I've got you know, the best hot dog in town. <laughs> and this is why it's the right, best hot right. dog in town. <laughs> and, but I need some money to make that hot dog. And what you'll do is you put your case on Indiegogo or Kickstarter and people get to see, oh, yeah, that is the best hot dog idea that I've heard in a long time. I'd like to invest in that. So you put money in there with the promise of getting those hot dogs later. And the, just the genius behind that is if, the, if people invest in that business through social funding, then you know by default that there is a market for it. So that's a long-winded way of saying make sure you test and make sure when you test, you are not emotionally, mentally attached to it and bell out, get out of Dodge and be ready to divorce it that fast if it's not there producing results that you were hoping for. Uh, the bottom line, Des, is it's, you waste a lot of time and a lot of effort on something that's not going to come to fruition. And deep down inside, you know. So, but it's just, it's, these, it's, it's just getting, like you said, it's getting caught into something, getting attached to it and not wanting to walk away but because you put so much time into it already. So that's what you have to realize is just because you put a lot of time into something, it doesn't guarantee that it's going to work out, man. When you start seeing a lot of these different signs popping up and you don't, you don't react on them, you don't go, oh, wait a minute, you know, let's start testing. Let's start figuring out if this is something that's going to come to fruition because it doesn't matter how much we've already put into it. It matters whether or not it's going to come out in the end and do something. And so when those things start popping up, you can't just ignore them and kick them aside because you've got so much time put into it and you don't want to push it out. Mm -hmm. Be real, be real about it. It's like, Hey, it doesn't matter because the end game is that it sells, that it makes money. Forget about how much time is put into it. Yeah. I mean, that's right. Regardless of how much time or investments or ego that you have wrapped up in it, do not be so committed to it that you bury yourself because the next five years in your life, the decisions that you make from now in the next five years are critical to what your tomorrow is going to be. You have to make sure that you're not tying yourself up into something that does not have a market for it. Be ready to move quickly. For those people that have no interest in having a, um, a new business or a side business, how about a job? This is one of the hottest job markets we've seen in decades right now, meaning this, that you people have help wanted signs all over the windows. And with the immigration tightening down, there's a lot of people that's been deported, right? And there's a lot of people looking for help. This is the hottest job market. If you are looking for a J-O-B, and that's more your speed, this is the time. If you're not 100% satisfied and you're not being fulfilled in your J-O-B, your job, now is the time to get your resume put together and to go out beating on some doors. For every 10, the study showed that for every $10,000 you need to make every year, okay, it will take you that many months to find a job. So let me say that again. For every $10,000 you need to make in a year. So if you need to make $70,000 a year, $100,000 a year, it will take you either seven months to find a job or 10 months to find a job. In this job market, you could cut that by about 30 to 35%, I think. So 
I, I believe that in just a matter of months, you could find a job that not only pays you more, but also puts you in a position to have a more fulfilling job that would just help you mentally and emotionally. <laughs> right. Yeah, especially emotionally. And because if you're not emotionally, you're not emotionally stable, then there goes the mental. <laughs> you, you know, right. I'll tell you this. Can I solve, I read a, a post from a, a buddy of mine, his name is TJ. And, and he made a point on this post. And this is a thinker. And I'll, you know, pose this to you. Think about the people who you will be thinking about on your deathbed. So you're on your deathbed. Who are the people that you hope are around you that you're thinking about? And then, so now the question is, what are you doing today to bring value to that relationship? That's funny that you mentioned that because I'm, I'm not going to answer your question directly, but I will, I'm going to answer it in a way that, in a way what I was thinking the other day. I was thinking, you know, I was actually watching a, uh, a show and, and somebody had passed away. And this guy seemed like he was a person that everyone loved. And the reason why they loved this person was because he gave so much of himself to them. Like he was always helping people. He's always giving them good answers and always giving them these thoughtful um, questions of, of a boyfriend or girlfriend or, or mom and dad troubles and never really telling them what to do, but always giving them questions for them to answer. And, and because of that, he was so dearly loved and people really missed him when he passed away. And I thought to myself, you know, I said, man, that's what, that's what I want to be like. I want, I want, when I pass away, how do you want people to remember you? How do you want people to think about you? And I thought to myself, man, that's it right there. I want people to remember me as somebody who was always there for them, that whenever they had a question, I didn't give them an answer, but I gave them options. I gave them ways for them to work themselves into a better situation. Because let's face it, people who were always trying to give you the answers are normally ones that will push them on you. But people who are always giving you options of different ways to handle different situations are usually the ones that you're going to grow close to because you won't feel pressured that you have to do something you don't want to do. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I want to start being more like that. So, and my, so my goals are is really to just be more about having options for people when they're in bad situations, no matter what it is, whether it's with fighting with their mom and dad or in a relationship with the, uh, in a relationship or whether it's a job thing or, or maybe you got in a fight at school or teachers, whatever the case may be, really just being there and hearing them talk and then giving them options that they'll be able to try to work out themselves won't always be the right decisions a lot of times. But they're always going to come back because they realize that you're not going to tell them what to do. They're going to, you're going to show them different options of them um, and being able to feel what feels best for them in the direction that they want to go. And so that's kind of, I guess I answered it in a roundabout way. You know, I just, I would like to be more of a person and when people are uh, around my deathbed that would remember me as a person that was always there and willing to help. Yeah, it's always a sobering thought to think that, yeah, that day. I mean, we're all we're all going to be there. We're all going to be on a deathbed at some point. <laughs> but, right. But man, that was, it was just such a a deep question. Think about the people who mean the most to you. The day of, that you're on your deathbed, who are those people? 
But the question is, because I know me as a businessman, I could just sink myself into business, sink myself into work, sink myself into the hustle and the grind because that's in my DNA. And, and I have to right. cognizant and conscious of the fact that, wait a second, I'm working for a better life, not to work because that is my life. And once I understood that personally, then I started building my work around my life. So I, the time that I spend with my wife, my time that I spend with my kids, I just don't let those times suffer. Well said. Well said. Like I said, it's, uh, yeah, you know, and it's like, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of picture yourself in those situations, you know? I mean, because like I said, when those days come, they're always different than what, what you expect them to be like. Man, just to be able to have those options, to be able to think about some of those things, being able to try to somewhat almost guide yourself into a position to where when you get to that point that it'll look similar to something that you want it to look like. And, you know, like I said, for me, it's going to be more about, you know, I get everything right. I mean, listen, man, I was world champion. I don't know how many times I made money. I mean, I, I did everything right, but it was all self-centered. It was all wrapped around what I did, what I wanted. And so, you know, fortunately for me, God bless myself and I appreciate the opportunity that I have that God's given me, but I have the opportunity to be able to turn around and do something for other people. You know, the more successful I become, the more I can do for other people, the more that I can be able to help other people. And to me, that's really what I really want out of the second part of my life really is not so much about my accomplishments. Um, I've done that. Now it's more about showing other people how to be accomplished themselves. Hmm. And how do you plan on doing that? Well, I think one is really just being available, you know, uh, just like with what we're doing with these different stuff that we're going to learning what these other people are doing, some of the things that they're doing to help people. And, and, and one of the things that they said that really resonated with me was that it's very difficult to help people from a poverty position. But when you get to a point to where you're um, successful and you have the power to turn around and help other people, I said, then it means something. And it really resonated with me. And it was like, you know what? That's, that's, what I, that's what I have to do. I have to get myself in a position to be able to help other people. And so that's really what, what my, my goal and my, my desire is to this day is to really get my, myself, and not, not just myself because we're business partners, but to get us in a position to be able to turn around and be able to help people without having any limitations. Mm. Well, because of your status, because of your fame, do you feel like, and this is just, I don't, this is just a question off from left field. Do you feel like that you're approachable? Do you feel like you are somebody that people can easily approach? I think uh, at at one time probably not because I had this this you know aura about me with the fight and the, the, the you know this this angry face before I fought. But now with the social media and being able to get out there and shake hands and do meet and greets and talk with people, it's a different situation now. Since me and you've gotten together, 
we've been able to send out a different type of person, a different Ken Shamrock that people are used to seeing on TV. Now they're seeing a guy who's friendly, who smiles, shakes hands, meets people, and getting very personable with them, getting to be able to go out and meet them. I know that has been our really a focus is for people to get to know who Ken Shamrock is as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I hope it's being well-received. I can only assume that it is. I can only assume, you know, for example, anytime we're adding to Team Shamrock, and let me define for everybody what Team Shamrock is. This is a, this is a good one. We have put together, and this is, I'll drive home to my point here in a second, but we've put together a, a team with Team Shamrock. These are volunteers that just are fans of Ken and fans of, yeah, the sport and would like to be involved at a deeper level and a professional level, you know, with a, a, a fighter of fame. It was interesting, Ken, as you remember, I said, um, hey, I'd like to reach out to some people to put together a, a team. And we had our discussions on it. What was your, if you remember, what was your initial thoughts on, on the concept? Uh, I loved it. I thought, wow, well, well, first of all, I was like, wait a minute. Um, okay, yeah, sounds great. But See, I didn't, I, you have a better understanding of that stuff and how that works. And I just didn't understand how to go out there and ask people to do stuff that didn't even know me really. And if they did know me, they didn't know me personally. So you had a different perspective on it. And thank God you did because it's been tremendous since we've done that. So kudos to you to, to reach out and, and get those, all those people on board and being able to get the things that we need to get done and build that family unity because it really is, man, we're, we're really building and it's growing fast. And then the people we have on board are, are oh, just doing tremendous stars, job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so to finish the, what we've put together is this team Shamrock and, and it's just team volunteers of people that, who have competencies, skill sets, and they would like to use those skill sets to help build up their own resume and to be close to Ken Shamrock, to be close to you, Ken. And, and I remember telling you, it's like, you have to trust me on this one because people, this is a big benefit to them because they get two things. They get a resume builder and, you know, experiences that they can add to their resume that includes a, a world famous, you know, UFC, MMA fighter and WWF legend. So that's huge. The other big benefit is they, they're connected with you now. <laughs> so they can literally say they know Ken Shamrock. <laughs> We're, I'm on Ken Shamrock's team. So there's two big, big benefits to that. So anyway, I'll, I'll say this, guys. If you have a skill set, if you're a writer, if you are a um, social media guy, if you do websites, if you uh, design, if you are an attorney, whatever, whatever skill set that you have and you're like, man, I think I, I wouldn't mind donating some time to be on Team Shamrock. I'm a fan and I have some time and I have a skill. Hit me up. You can do so at Des, D-E-S, Delta Echo State at KenShamrock.com and we'll, we'll talk. Anyway, but what's cool with that, Ken, is we put together this team of people and now it becomes its own little ecosystem everyone gets to benefit from that well i think that we benefit in large part because it allows us 
to run our businesses and we can do things faster and better than what we could, you know, just on ourselves or not having the team in place. But having this team in place allows us, you know, for you to reach your fans quicker and we expedite that process, you know, through social media with our fans help. And a lot of people don't know this, but you've just been, got started with social media in the last couple of years. Up until that time, you just kind of stayed away from it. But now we're jumping in and we're building it up fairly aggressively, which is, which is a good thing. Yeah, because it, you know, one thing that before I was able to stay connected with my fans, because I was fighting, so I was able to stay pretty connected to everyone. When fighting started to slow down, I started feeling like I was losing connection with my fans. Like I, there was no way for me to really stay connected with them. And I felt almost like, wow, I, I don't want to lose them. I don't want to feel like I can't talk with them. And so that's when we started coming up with the website, social media sites, being able to do the podcast so that we have a mouthpiece to stay connected with the people that helped me get to where I, was, I am at today. Mm-hmm. I want to put a plug in before we wrap up here, Ken. I want to put a plug in for the lion's cage. And we are looking for individuals who have a service, have a product, you have a business, you're excited about something and you want to do something cool and you love to have some exposure on that. Shoot us, go to dangerouspodcast.com, dangerouspodcast.com, go to the lion's cage part and submit your information to us. We would love to feature you on our podcast and talk about your business. And if you, and guys, we appreciate the things that you mail us. If you guys mail us something, you, you have a pretty good chance of, so if it's a product or service, make sure you send two of everything. But all the information is at dangerouspodcast.com and we'll, we'll get you a mention too on the podcast. Outside of that, Ken, any final thoughts? I thought we uh, had a great podcast. Loved it. Before we go here, we're going to do a little story time. I would love that. All right. Well, listen, this one here isn't going to be long, but it's going to be one that I think it, it, it's before the actual, this, this era of Ken Shamrock, but it really started to become to fruition after this event. I was bouncing at a nightclub in Redding, California. It was called the Doc Skyrim. Old place. He used to play rock and roll in a country western club. <laughs> yeah. Now you know it was pretty mixed up. We had live, band, we had live bands there. There was this tough man coming into town, right? This, it started, it was about time we started to get popular, you know, it was in the early 80s. A lot of it was like two guys at this club that were going to get in it. And here I was 19 years old. No one really knew, knew who I was very much. I was playing college football, you know, no one really knew my reputation. I went in and put my hand in, the, in this fight and it was a $10,000 purse. And so I remember there was this guy that was in it from the club there. He had this reputation. He was a big dude. He was all yoked up. He just got out of prison. Supposed to be known for being this real tough guy. And so I was like, oh, what the, it's just gloves. No big deal. I'm used to the street fighting, so it can't be that bad, right? Whatever. I'll go ahead and fight the guy. So we get in there. First night, it was eight, I think it was eight guys that was in the tournament. There was eight guys in the 205 pound and up. And there was eight guys in the 205 pound below. So there was two different weight classes. At the end of the fight, the two guys for the grand prize, which was the $10,000 prize, would fight each other for the grand prize. So the 200 pound fighter and the 200 above pound fighter would fight each other for the grand prize for 10 grand. (laughs) 
so I go through this fight. I weighed about 217 pounds, right? And these guys come in 6'4", 260, you know, 6'2", 220, just big guys, right? And yes. I was probably the smallest guy in the tournament. And they had 16-ounce gloves on, 16-ounce gloves. So the bell rings. I go in there. The first guy to fight, he was like 6'6", big, tall guy. I put him on the ropes about a minute into the fight. Actually, it was about 90 seconds, about 60. Okay, so if it's a minute, there, there are two-minute rounds. So it was about a minute and 20 seconds. There wasn't much left in the, in, the, in the first round. I hit him to the body with a 16-ounce glove, and I fractured his rib. Oh. Left hook, left hook to the head, knocked him through the ropes. This was my first fight, right? So all of a sudden, people's eyes start opening up. Who is this kid? Right? Nobody knew me. I just started bouncing at the club. Well, this other guy who was, who was fighting was like, I don't know, on the other side of the bracket. He fights his first fight. And he ends up getting beat on a decision in the first, first fight. So I was like, uh-oh. I mean, this other guy must be pretty tough. So anyway, I knock this first guy out. The next guy I go in there, I knock him out with a headshot. Boom, he goes down. First round. First round knockout. I go into the finals. First round, shot to the head, right hand. First round, knocked him out. Boom, out cold. So I win all my fights just for knockout. I just knocked everybody out. 16-ounce gloves, right? So we get to the finals. And this is the guy who just won his division, the lightweight division, which is 200 pounds and below. And I just won my division, which was 200 pounds and above. I walk into the ring, and the guy that I'm supposed to fight doesn't even get into the ring, doesn't even enter into the <laughs> ring to fight me. He says I'm hurt. He doesn't come in to fight me. That right there, I, in my opinion, right there is where I really understood. And if you think about Ken Shamrock, you think of Ken Shamrock as a submission fighter. Think Ken Shamrock as the grappler. But what most people don't know, unless you knew me as a youngster, everybody will tell you I had a one heck of a punch. Everybody knew me as one punch Shamrock. And so that was my very first tough man. Hmm. And I went on to win two more after that, both of them in, in Carolina. But I went on to do more of that. But that's when I really realized what my father told me. He said, someday you're going to kill somebody. <laughs> wow. And he was almost right well, a couple of times in some of the stories I've told. But, <laughs> but yeah, that, that right there stuck in my head um, when I wanted to tell a story was because I, that was the time where I really realized at 19 years old, fighting these grown men who are much bigger than me and, and just manhandling was the first time I'd really gone into a situation where it was a controlled environment where there were rules and I was wearing these gloves that I just went in and dominated. Hmm. And I didn't even have a thought about losing. When I went into this, I felt like I'm going to win. Even though I was a young kid fighting grown men, I just had this thought, like, I'm going to maul them. When the bell rang, I went, I was all over them. There was no rest. There was no nothing. I just went after them. Wow. And I just ended them and ended them and ended them. And that's when I really realized, like, hey, you know, I, I might be pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is amazing. That mindset. Did you just have a, a chip on your shoulder because you were bouncing or what was the mindset for you to be able to go there and say, I'm just going to maul these guys? Well, I think in my mind, it was like, I had no fear because to me, going in and fighting one person in a ring was so much easier than fighting 10 guys in, a, in an alley or with a guy with a gun or a knife, which is how I grew up. And so it was such an, a sport to me. It was like, this was fun. This wasn't scary to me. This was fun. It was like, like wrestling in your front room. I know it sounds weird, 
But to me, it really was about just going in there and wrestling with your dad in the front room and rolling around. And to me, this was entertainment. It was fun. It was a time to enjoy yourself because you weren't going to be killed. <laughs> because you weren't going to be killed. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, that's good. All right, Ken. Great story. Love them. To everybody out there, you can find us at dangerouspodcast.com. All of our social media is on that. Take care. You made it through the world's most dangerous podcast. Find them at dangerouspodcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Always remember, sharing is caring. Dangerouspodcast.com. World's most dangerous podcast can be found on social media. For business proposals to dangerouspodcast.com.